So let's stand together. Let me just read that 34th verse. When he, that is Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them. Because... They were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. O Lord, we call upon you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and ask that you would hasten to our side. As the psalmist says, we ask that you would give ear to our voice when we call out to you. That you would receive our prayers like they would be pleasing incense before you. And as we lift up our hands in need, may they be as acceptable to you as the most righteous evening sacrifice was in the Old Covenant. Lord, we live in a time where it is the norm in our cultural context to speak carelessly, to speak foolishly, to speak slanderous words, angry words, exaggerated words and we live in this time and so we ask you with the psalmist that you would set a guard O Lord on our mouths that you would watch over the door of our lips that we would speak the truth in love. Father, you tell us that your people have always been afflicted by enemies. Sometimes the enemy is a political force. Sometimes it's a particular person. Sometimes It's our own bodies that turn against us and we find ourselves facing a serious threat, whether it be heart disease or cancer or Lou Gehrig's disease, Parkinson's disease, diabetes, and on and on the list may go. Lord, when we find ourselves in the face of political, physical, health-related enemies, may you enable us to keep our eyes fixed firmly on you, May you enable us to see the wisdom of seeking our refuge in you. As we plead with you, do not leave us defenseless. So, Lord, we pray that as we come into this hour, that you would enable us to hear your voice as we consider the outlook, the general outlook 
of the Lord Jesus on the culture of the first century and what they needed most desperately. And as we consider our own culture, may we also consider what we need most desperately and seek that with a whole heart. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. I thought I'd date myself in the opening illustration, but there's really, of course, no need to date yourself when you look like I do. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty plain uh, that your better days are behind you uh, and that most of them are behind you. So you, you automatically date yourself as soon as you merely walk out in public. Uh, however, because of that, because of that, I am going to cite another uh, lyric from a pop song from the early 1970s, 51 years ago. A very obscure uh, rock band that you may have never even heard of. They're only in existence for about three years. And in fact, if you read up on them in Wikipedia, they, they were so unable to get along with each other that there's very rarely like a four-month period in a row where the band is made up of the same people uh, because they quit, pray, you know, they keep quitting and bringing somebody else in. And uh, one of them, a guy by the name of Jerry Rafferty, went on to have something of a, a solo career in the late 1970s. But the band was called Steeler's Wheel, and their one hit, their one hit song from 1972, was called Stuck in the Middle with You. And it had this memorable line in it. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. In one of the verses, he admits this about himself, and in so doing is speaking for, I think, the average person in American culture in the early 1970s, where he says, I've been trying to make sense of it all. But I can see it makes no sense at all. I've been trying to make sense of it all. But I can see that it makes no sense at all. What do you expect when you got clowns to the left of you and jokers to the right? Now, 30 years before that song was released, C.S. Lewis released a book called The Screw Tape Letters that I've mentioned many times. The first letter of the 31 letters that are in The Screw Tape Letters is just an absolute masterpiece of analysis in some ways, of that very lyric. In the screw tape letters, Lewis speaks in the first person as if he is a senior devil teaching a junior devil the art of temptation by means of letters. So he's, he's the senior devil. He's writing a letter of instruction to this junior devil named Wormwood so that Wormwood would be better able to understand the people that he's tempting and seeking to ruin. 
And in that opening letter, Lewis wrote this about what he thought of the average person living in Great Britain in 1942. He said, your man has been accustomed ever since he was a boy to have a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing about together inside his head. He doesn't think of doctrines as primarily true or false, but as academic or practical or outworn. If Lewis was writing 80 years later, in 2022 or 2023, he might have put it like this. He does not think of doctrines as primarily true or false, but as authentic as being on the right side of history, as sufficiently woke. And in saying that, he would be painting a very accurate picture of where we live as he was in 1942. And this is Lewis's explanation why somebody would say, I've been trying to make sense of it all. But I can see, I just can't make sense of anything. Well, what would you expect if you had 12 incompatible philosophies dancing about In your head. You say, well, what does that have to do with our text? Everything. Verse 34 Jesus went ashore and he saw a great crowd, a great crowd. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. There's the key line. He saw this great crowd, and he has compassion for them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. They don't know what to think about most things, really. And he began to teach them many things. Which tells us, in short, when we summarize this verse, as I will do right up front, right, our thesis is this. The Lord shepherds us by teaching us. Other ways, too, but that's the central way. That's certainly the central way that's focused in on here, uh, mentioned here. The Lord shepherds us. By teaching us. Now, as we come to this text, one of the things we're asked to do is just look out on Jesus, as Jesus did, and consider the average person. Because that's who always makes up crowds the average person. So, number one, we are asked to consider, to think about the average person. Crowds play a big role in Mark's gospel. This is the 13th time a crowd has been mentioned. Here we are in chapter 6. And by the time we get to the end of the gospel, crowd will have been mentioned 38 times. So crowds are mentioned more than twice a a chapter and actually quite a bit more than twice a chapter because there's no crowd mentioned in chapter 1, and there's no crowd mentioned in chapter 16. And so, 2 to 15, there's 38 references to a crowd. 
Two Friday nights ago, uh, Shirley and I happened to be driving through downtown Sioux Falls on, uh, on uh, what's called First Friday. Uh, I'm a boring person. I don't get downtown Sioux Falls on First Friday or any other Friday uh, very often at all. And let me tell you something. There is a crowd of people downtown in Sioux Falls on First Friday. If you haven't been down there for a while, they're there. Uh, they are, people are everywhere out along Phillips Avenue, which is where we were uh, driving. And I don't know how many people there were, but there were a ton. And if you add them up together, we were almost certainly looking at the average person in Sioux Falls. That crowd represents the average person in Sioux Falls. My wife has started to uh, go with her sisters to the Minnesota State Fair with some regularity in recent years. I, I've gone twice, um, and we... Uh, we avail ourselves of the free parking, which is many miles from the fair. Um, uh, but but they, the, they, 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 they give you a free shuttle bus that then takes you right to the main entrance of the fair. And if you've never been to the Minnesota State Fair, on a day when the weather is relatively nice and, and you're getting there maybe close to to noon, because by the time you go park the car and wait for the shuttle and then drive uh, across uh, uh, pieces of Minneapolis St. St. Paul, you know, it's, it's probably close to at least noon, unless you get up really early. But anyways, coming in at that time, you go right through the main entrance, and you can see down two thor- thoroughfares of, uh, of that fairground, and there's a Upward of two to three hundred thousand people there on a given day, and from when that from that spot, when you look down those thoroughfares, it looks like a sea of humanity. I've taken quite a few pictures of it. You, the picture does not capture what you feel like you're seeing when you're actually seeing it. But without exaggeration, you're seeing tens of thousands of people. Because you can see about more than a quarter mile in both of those directions. And it's just people. Shoulder to shoulder to shoulder, slowly moving like a slow river. And those people represent the average Minnesotan. Almost certainly. You add those up. Analyze it. What you are looking at is the average Minnesotan, the average Midwesterner. Jesus comes out of this boat, and as we'll find out as we move forward, by the end of this day when he gets out of the boat, this crowd that meets him has become a crowd of 5,000 men Plus, we know significantly plus because Matthew, in his parallel version, Matthew fourteen twenty one says, uh, those who ate were about 5,000 men besides, that is not counting, women and children. So that when Jesus looks at this crowd, he is very much looking at the average Galilean. And we know something about the average Galilean from chapter 6 alone, let alone the rest of the gospel. According to chapter 6, the average Galilean, the kind of Galilean, for instance, that lives in Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, when Jesus, does, when Jesus preaches there and they don't like what they hear, according to Luke's parallel account, they try to kill him. 
They try to throw him off of a cliff. That's the average Galilean. Middle of our chapter, the average elite Galilean. It's the kind of person that goes to a birthday party where through a series of events, a righteous and holy man's head is chopped off, placed on a platter, and bought to the party. And they walk it around for people to see. That was the action of a key political leader in Galilee named Herod. His wife, Herodias. That's the group of people that's gathered along the shore. From Nazareth to Herod's palaces and everything in between. That crowd represents the average Galilean. Just consider the average person that's around us. Secondly, we're asked to consider the attitude of Jesus toward the average person. We're asked to consider the attitude of Jesus toward the average person. Remember, we're looking at the kind of people that attempt to kill Jesus if they don't like what he says in the synagogue message. Their leaders are the type of people that could cut off the head of John the Baptist as part of a birthday party celebration. That's the culture of the Roman Empire and Palestine in the first century that Jesus is living in. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. Now, if we're not careful, we'll make one of two equally deadly mistakes. And if we're not even more careful, we'll make those two mistakes simultaneously, depending on who we're with. And we don't want to do either. So here's here's error number one. Jesus had compassion upon them. Jesus had compassion upon them. Think of that group at the Minnesota State Fair. Uh, for a moment. What's the average Minnesotan think? How does the average Minnesotan sort out their, the great moral questions of our day um, in their elections and so forth? Well, I can tell you they, the average Minnesotan does not tend to agree with me about very much. Um, uh, and so, but there, there you are. You're looking at this group of people, the average Minnesotan, thousands upon thousands of, of, of them. Uh, they are, uh, they are, many of them in the majority, very much in line with all of the hopes and dreams of the cultural Marxists of our day. I think that's a very dangerous, dangerous thing. Um, That's where they are. So what you're tempted to say is, well, Jesus... Jesus had compassion on them in kind of an annoyed sort of way. I mean, it's not not real 
compassion, he's actually more ticked off toward them than he is compassionate toward them. Uh, He's actually a bit more annoyed with them than he is compassionate toward them. He's compassionate in a sort of not all that compassionate sort of way. We're tempted. Kind of slide him over a little bit like that. But then on the other hand, on the other hand, we sometimes are tempted to read it this way. All right, so Jesus has compassion on the people there at the Minnesota State Fair. You know what? That compassion might mean this. Jesus might actually want to teach his followers compassion such that they might do a little cultural pandering. Maybe put a rainbow flag outside their house to show, you know, that they're, they're the kind of follower of Jesus that's a bit more enlightened than the average these mean-spirited people that you see on television. Well, that's the other error. No. No. No, you don't, you don't get to turn Jesus' compassion into actually nothing more than annoyance so that you might make him a little more like you and that his annoyances will match yours. But neither can you turn Jesus into somebody who panders to the culture. For he certainly does not do that. Both errors are to be avoided and we're to be sure that we understand to be with Jesus when we look out on the average crowd we have compassion on them not because we agree with them not because we think these issues aren't worth any angst or anger But because of what he tells us next, because of what he tells us next, thirdly, we're asked to consider the atmosphere, spiritually speaking, where the average person lives. We're asked to consider the atmosphere where the average person lives. They were like sheep without a shepherd. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Yes, they're the kind of people that might try to kill Jesus at the close of a synagogue service. But that's because they are like sheep without a shepherd. The elites, the political leadership, has become the kind of people that can cut off the head of John the Baptist and parade it at a birthday party. That's because they're like sheep without a shepherd. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't doesn't think there's real errors, like that it wasn't really such of a bad thing that they tried to kill him and that it wasn't really such of a bad thing that they cut off the head of John the Baptist. Remember this, Jesus would fully, absolutely, totally embrace this picture of of wisdom from Proverbs 8.13. Listen to this. The fear of the Lord is... The hatred of evil. Pride, arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate. 
That's Jesus. That's Jesus. So he's got no sympathy with this kind of activity at all. And yet, when he looks at a group of people largely immersed in that activity, he has compassion upon them because he knows how they got there. They're like sheep without a shepherd. For instance, that Galilean group, uh, the Pharisaical movement of the Galilean area Pretty conservative, pretty upstanding, love the word of God to a degree uh, for sure. We're serious about the word of God to a large degree, but they knew this for sure. Jesus is not the Messiah. So that's one shepherd that they had floating around with them. Bible-oriented, but Bible-oriented in such a way that they know Jesus is not the Messiah. And we'll punish anybody who says that he is. Another whole group known as the Herodians, their big thing is, hey, look, wake up. We're in a world empire. Quit being backward, dreamy, head in the sand, Jewish people. Wake up and understand where we live. You go along to get along. Watch Herod. He knows what he's doing. He's curried the favor of the Roman Empire. He sort of stayed Jewish, and yet he fits right in. That's the Herodian party. They have Sadducean shepherds as well. They have straight-out Roman Empire advocates as well. For those who have simply abandoned their Jewish heritage, faith-wise. And that's what Jesus means when he says, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Now that little phrase, as you should have noted, was borrowed from Numbers 27. And it's a really particular place in Numbers 27 that I think you're supposed to pay a bit of careful attention to. Because what's going on right at that point in Numbers 27 is that there's a shepherd transfer going on. And not only is there a shepherd transfer going on, but it's it's a bit of a shepherd transfer downgrade going on, but still a good one, that the Lord is altogether behind. Because this is the transition from Moses, who doesn't get to enter the promised land, to Joshua, who does. And as you go forward in the book of Joshua, you find out things like this. You know what? Joshua does not get communicated to in the same way that Moses did. The Lord never comes to Joshua and speaks to him face-to-face. Uh, that, that, is, that never happens with Joshua. Uh, it's a bit of a, he does not have that status. He does not have those kinds of experience. He is a lesser shepherd, and his main thing is to say, as he says in Joshua chapter 1, We need to pay attention very carefully all the time to every single thing that Moses wrote. Um, And that'll be the key uh, to our our moving forward. Uh, Reading into it, I read from verse 15, I had the uh, worship team read verse 15 and following, but let me begin a little bit earlier in verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, go up into this mountain of Abiram and see the land that I have given the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. That is, you'll die. Because you rebelled against 
my word in the wilderness of Zin when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah of Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. Give them a shepherd who shall go out before them and come in before them, and who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord, and here's what he doesn't want to happen, may not be as sheep without a shepherd. Here's the really dangerous thing that could happen to these people. Lord, don't let it happen. Don't let them be sheep without a shepherd. Don't let them get into a position where they don't have any idea who to listen to. But of course, that's exactly what happens to them in relatively short order. And so by the time you get to the book of Judges, Israel is a sheep without a shepherd, and they're becoming Canaanites uh, left and right. And that's a big central story in the Old Testament. Now keep this one thought in mind. The name Jesus, placed back into Hebrew, is what? It's Joshua. Joshua. There's a Joshua here now. He's not just less, he's not, he's not just not less than Moses. He's not equal to Moses either. It's the author of the Epistle of the Hebrews makes plain. He is high, vastly above Moses. And as the Messiah, he's come to be the shepherd of the people. He's the God-ordained shepherd. He can be your shepherd and mine, amazingly enough. In this culture where most people live as sheep without a shepherd, you can have the Lord of glory as your shepherd. Joshua. Jesus. The ultimate of all shepherd transfers has just taken place. And Jesus, the Messiah, is now there looking out at this people. Peter, Peter will later say of Jesus in Acts 4.12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Fourth and finally, we're asked to consider the action that Jesus takes in behalf of the average person. We're asked to consider the action that Jesus takes on behalf of the average person, it's not at all tricky to figure out what that is. Um, and he went ashore, and he saw a great crowd, had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. He began to teach them many things. Now, the scholars have a little bit of a debate about uh, what many things uh, really, really means. Um, all the major translations, though, come down on the same side, and they use that translation many things. So Jesus taught them about a whole lot of things. But a, a scholar of the level of a Cranfield, CBD Cranfield, who in the, in the um, New Testament world, at the time that he wrote his uh, 
commentary on Mark, he would be, those of you who are baseball fans, he would kind of be, uh, uh, you know, the Mike Trout uh, or a Mike Trout sort of player among New Testament figures. He's a big gun, uh, lots of authority. And then he says, no, I, I think actually what it means is, is, is rather than teach them many things, teach them with great, he, would, he, teach, he taught them with great intensity. He taught them much, in the sense he taught them with great intensity. Not so much the number of things that he taught them, but that he taught them intensely, letting them know just really how important uh, these things are. So why would he do that? Why would that be? Because Jesus knows better than C.S. Lewis knew it. But it's the same thing that C.S. Lewis knew, right? The average person has a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing about in his head. The average person in Galilee is sort of a Herodian and sort of a Pharisee and sort of a Sadducee and sort of just a member of the Roman Empire and sort of an, an on you go, and on you go. And there's only really one chance of correcting that. And that is to teach them to think about life in the divinely revealed way and to have that way become the way that actually rules and governs their lives. That's the only hope they have is that they come to adopt an actually coherent view of the world That is Jesus' view of the world. That's what the whole Bible is about. That's the Bible in a nutshell. Jesus' view of of the world. Jesus' view of the world. Now, we live in a culture that is exactly, exactly like the one that Lewis was describing when he talked about all these incompatible philosophies dancing together. In our head, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, who, as I mentioned before, won the Templeton Prize for religion back in 2007 for his book, A Secular Age, writes this about our time here in the early 21st century. He says, the drawing sense in modern times that we are in a meaningless universe, that our most cherished meanings find no endorsement in the cosmos or in the will of God, has often been described as a dramatic loss, a second and definitive expulsion from paradise. But he goes on to let us know, But that's a really small group of people. Scholarly types that are completely despairing of finding any meaning at all. But they are right back. They are right back in that song, right? They have tried to make sense of it all. But they can see that it makes no sense at all. And that's where they live. Game over. Lights out. Nihilism, they call it. Is nihilism. Big in universities, not that widespread in the average person. The next thing he touches on, extremely widespread and becoming more and more widespread all the time. But in Friedrich Nietzsche's portrayal, we have virtually a hymn of praise. We sense another reaction. We sense exhilaration. It is partly the very spectacle of immensity and power. But there is also almost the giddy sense within this massive turbulence. And here's the key little phrase. All meaning is up to us. All meaning is up to us. 
That's why somebody can decide whether or not they're born in the right body. All meaning is up to us. That's why the story of Sodom and Gomorrah can be the, become the stuff of Pride Month because all meaning is up to us. All meaning is up to us. To use Paul-like language, what Nietzsche was saying was something like this. From us and through us and to us is all meaning. May we be glorified forever and ever. Amen. And Jesus teaches us it's not so. It's not so. Rather, it's from him and through him and to him, God, creator God, all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Began to teach them many things. That's why Pastor Don says what he says every week from this pulpit when he's giving announcement. We are becoming disciples. We are becoming learners. We are becoming people who allow Jesus to teach us many things. We are people who take up Jesus' perspective as the perspective. And that's what we're about. That's why we're in the Gospel of Mark. That's why we're in the book of Exodus in the evening. That's why Pastor Terry's in the book of Deuteronomy. That outlook, that divinely revealed outlook. We'll close with two prayer requests found in Psalm 119. We've been sending out devotionals on Psalm 119 for a um, little over three years now. There's a lot of we do over, there's a lot of uh, verses in Psalm 119. Uh, two of my favorite are relatively early on. They both relate to the same thing. They both open with a command that tells you how to you ought to pray for yourself each day when you open your Bible. The first one is Psalm 119.18. That's a, one of the famous pieces of the uh, 119th Psalm. Open my eyes that I may behold the wonderful things that are in your law, in law's instruction. Open my eyes Because if my eyes are really open, if you enlighten me, not only will I basically have a broad outline of what's being taught in the Bible, but I'll love it. I'll see it as wonderful. Open my eyes that I might see the Lord's things in such a way that I recognize they're wonderful. They are wonderful. Yes, they are. They are. The second one's actually my, become my favorite. Um, we put it on little bookmarks once that we gave away quite a few years ago. Some of you may even still have such of a bookmark floating around. Psalm 119, verse 34 this time the commands put in the most intensive form of the Hebrew verb, the he feel. ESV translates it this way. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. How he's translated to myself this way. Cause me to understand. Cause me to understand that I might be shaped in every part of my life 
by your instructions. And increasingly live them out. And not merely in some mechanical way, but with my whole heart. Because that's what will happen if I really understand. If you really let me see who you are and what your words are and how wise they are. And by contrast, how desperately lost and twisted and hopeless and self-destructive the ruling philosophies of our day are when compared to the words and ways of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do ask that you would cause us to understand what we read and that we would become increasingly desperate to be shaped by your ways, by your words, by your priorities in our lives and live out those words in those ways and those priorities in such a way that, as Jesus said, that we might shine like lights in a dark place, having compassion toward so many people we see all around us, who are living their lives as sheep who have no shepherd. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.